Hey guys, on this episode, we talked to Angela Stopper. She is the Chief Learning and Development Officer for UC Berkeley. She is a total forward thinker, and we kind of get into uh, why learning and development falls flat, why organizations and why leaders uh, don't brush enough crumbs off the table to allow for the time and the money uh, to build people up. And we talk about some of the impacts that um, come from you know putting your, your money where your mouth is and really creating a space for um, you know that prioritizes people. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey, Bestie. Hope you're having an amazing day. Your smile lights up every room you step into. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts? You get a bonus greeting on every episode. So hit that subscribe button as we change the world by making our workplaces better. Got a real treat for everyone today. We have Angela Stopper. She is the Chief Learning Officer at UC Berkeley. How's it going, Angela? It's going great. How are you doing? Good. Uh, excited to get you on. You know, in our pre-show, you talked about something interesting um, that I think we all kind of aspire to build in our organizations, and that's kind of having a true learning culture, a true coach, coaching culture. You have a pretty interesting background on how you've landed in the spot that you're in, so I want to hear a little bit about that for sure. But just at a high level, what do you think a, col a coaching culture or a true learning culture um, you know, generates, and why is that so hard for most organizations to achieve? Yeah, you know, I think at a very high level, when you have a true coaching culture, when you have a true learning culture, People can come to work as their full selves and know that they're going to be supported and championed to be successful in their role as a human, as a person, that managers are going to help to help them be successful, that the leadership cares about them being successful. And that's everybody from the, the very frontline workers to the most senior people in the organization. They feel supported. They feel cared for. They feel like what they do matters, and they feel like they know where to ask for support when they need it. And I think there's a lot of things that makes that hard. I think having that kind of a safe space to ask for help when you need help is hard. Right. Finding the time to care about people as their full person is hard. Asking good questions and listening to answers and then responding to those answers is hard. You know, it's hard to not get defensive. It's hard as a human to not defend and try to champion your own views. So all of those things hurt when you're building a true learning culture that sees individuals as the individual that they are and the, the power that they bring to their position, to their role, to the organization as a whole. So um, I think that's spot on. How do you deal with the challenge? Uh, like, how do you deal with what I would call the last mile? So you have a team of people that are all on board with that approach. They're on board with that ethos, right? And so we have that in sort of the one hand. And then on the other hand, we know that the majority, probably 80% of someone's like experience at work or experience of an organization is like, ha is, you know, unduly wrong word maybe, but like there's an outsized impact on that experience rooted in the person that they report to, A, and just the people that they're surrounded by, which then makes it critical for us to like bridge that gap between sort of well-intending people in these sort of central functions like, you know, learning or DEI or whatever. Uh, and that experience that an individual is having day to day, because they're probably not interacting with you day to day. They're at least interacting with their manager a lot more. So what strategies have you figured out to bridge that gap 
like more effectively to make sure that all these little sort of mini cultures, these little pods of culture uh, that make up this sort of aggregate culture that is UC Berkeley or that would define UC Berkeley, how do you ensure that those are relatively consistent or providing that same sort of employee experience? Yeah, such a great question. And I think the place where people sometimes get stuck is they try to find the one silver bullet that's going to do all that. Mm. And there isn't one answer. There, there's kind of a multi-prong approach, I think, to getting there. So you need a you need a top down, you need a bottom up, you need something that people can coalesce around mm. to build understanding of what that actually looks like. You know, at Berkeley, we're very lucky to have a senior leader. So our chancellor, or if you're in an organization, it'd be like your CEO, who cares about people and cares about their development and wants people to succeed. You know, I have a chief uh, human resource officer. So our chief people and culture officer is my boss who cares about people and wants them to succeed and wants people to be able to bring their full selves to work. You know, and then we have people on campus who have a very kind of advocate personality that is, that is what Berkeley is. So people can be very vocal and they can, they can talk about what they actually need. And sometimes it's ways that are a little confrontational. Sometimes it's ways that aren't, mm -hmm. but, you know, having kind of that top down and that bottom up structure, I think is really helpful in making sure that this is something that everybody can see themselves in. But then you have to have something that people kind of coalesce around. So we're all speaking the same language. We have some kind of a shared language around what does success really look like and what does that mean? And so we have principles of community that say, when you show up at Berkeley, this is what you should be thinking about. And the principles of community are great. And in addition to that, we've updated our performance evaluation program to highlight more of those. So instead of just being a goals-driven organization, so the what you do, we've updated our performance program. So we talk about the what, we talk about the goals you accomplish, your job mastery, but we also talk about how you do it. We talk about collaboration as part of a successful employee evaluation. We talk about inclusion and belonging. We talk about innovation, which is really continuous improvement, but we call it innovation. So we say that to be successful in your role, these are the things you need to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then we tell managers they need to talk to their employees about this more than once a year. You need to have these conversations with employees a couple of times a year, three times is what we say. And we have structured questions around how does a manager have a conversation around these different achievement criteria? We require everybody to have a professional development goal as part of their performance evaluation. We have a policy in place that says every employee gets 80 hours or 10 days to use for professional development. We encourage managers to put 5% time in everybody's job description for professional development. And so, you know, we have a community of practice called, the, we have a lot of communities of practice and a lot of identity-based staff organizations. What does that mean, which, communities of practice? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of grassroots efforts where employees have coalesced for a community of practice. It's around a function. And so we have a Cal Coaching Network where regardless of cool. your job, if you wanna learn more about coaching, you go hang out with people who want to learn more about coaching. And so you start building that community. We have a Cal facilitators network. We have identity-based staff organizations as well. We have the Cal Women's Network. We have our Lavender Cal, which is our LGBTQ plus network. We have our Black fa faculty and staff organization. We have all of these places where people can go to find either like groups with their identity or like groups with their jobs and their functions and things that interest them. 
And all of that we look at as professional development. We look at that as being part of the employee experience. And because we say you should be doing professional development as part of your job through our policies and our job descriptions and our job postings, and then we have all these opportunities for folks to be able to do professional development in those multiple different ways, I think it creates this this tsunami wave of different ways of engaging different groups hopefully in ways that are meaningful for them. Because to your point, you can't get everybody to come to a workshop or to come to a speaker series because, you know, it it might not resonate with them. Yeah. And it's so much more, more powerful when people are like self-selecting into those groups or into those opportunities. Like it's so much more impactful because whatever they take from that is more likely to actually be absorbed into their mind and heart and ultimately into the way that they do things. Um, It sounds like you guys have really kind of, puts um, a really smart structure in place because from what I heard you say, you have kind of the top down and the bottom up. You have mm-hmm. leadership that really cares about this stuff, uh, but then you've also augmented these sort of more ethereal things of like an attitude or a um, you know a vision or a goal or something with tangible, hey, 5% of your time or professional, you know, that an individual's professional development plan is obviously something that's very tangible. Uh, right. and needs to be created. And then you also have these areas that people can self-select into, and they also have time kind of carved out. So, you know, you just see like a lot of organizations say, you know, we care most about people. And it's like, well, you look at their P&L and there's not even a line for learning and development. Or right. we care most about people and there's nothing sort of like corporately carved out in terms of policies to your point or, you know, whatever, like a percentage of people's, you know, time or... Um, you know, even salary that's, you know, attributable to these types of things. Um, and so it just sounds like you guys have really put your money where your mouth is. I want to dive into these like little network groups I, and just talk a little bit about the role that those have played and mm-hmm. how those ended up kind of like emerging from the ether. Because at some point you didn't have those groups and now you do. And now you're seeing some of that benefit you know, what's been the impact of those groups and like, how did you get to where you're at where now you have this network? What did you call them? Kind of professional groups or something? So we have uh, communities of practice. Communities of practice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, identity-based organizations. So we call them, generally we call them staff organizations. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Employee resource groups is something, another term that folks use. So, so how did, you know, you went from at some point having none of these or a few of these, and now you have a bunch of these. And so how did you get from there to here? Yeah. So, you know, we've had these kind of pockets of people that want to bring others together and help them succeed for a very long time on our campus. So our campus is over 150 years old. And it, maybe it's just the, the culture of higher ed. Maybe maybe it's who we are. You know, Berkeley has some of the best and brightest students in the world come here. We have some of the best and brightest faculty in the world come here. And we have some of the best and brightest staff on our campus. And those those personalities may we also have a very strong advocacy advocacy culture you know Berkeley is the home of free speech and and so I think our culture has allowed people to say hey let's come together and help each other right and you know our very first staff organizations are are you know veteran I mean they're 60 70 years old these groups have been coming together and talking about kind of the functions of the work or the identity of the people and supporting each other and helping to be successful. But that has grown significantly because, you know, we have some 
some of these groups that I mentioned have been around for a very long time. And then others see the power of bringing people together and supporting them. And so they've just kind of blossomed and grown. And a couple have been seated. So when we were thinking about building a coaching culture on our campus, you know, one of the things that I said was we should really have a community of practice around this. And being the chief learning officer sitting in people and culture, which is what we call HR, I wasn't going to go out and do that. But I said it to a couple of people on my team. They're like, that's a great idea. Let's make that happen. You know, and so, right. again, it, it's really the people who are wanting to do that, bringing these groups together and we give them a little bit of support. We should probably give them more support. But, you know, funding is always is hard. Sure. So we give them a little bit of money. We give them tools to make listservs. We're hopefully trying to give them space where they can bring people together. You know, we give them Zoom, we give them to, to have virtual meetings when we're on campus. But there is some challenges around finding space, like yeah. dedicated space for these folks to come together. But those are kind of the, the questions that we're looking at to think about how can we take these these grassroots efforts that that happen organically and make sure we're supporting them. When I came into the role. I, I was looking around and I said, goodness, we have like 17 of these communities of practice. What, what do we, what do we in human resources do for these folks? And the answer was not a whole lot. And I said, well, how about I just start meeting with the leadership teams twice a year and just talking to them. And, you know, so we put the call out and we said in these wonderful staff organizations, who wants to come in and talk to HR a couple of times a year about what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you need. You know, my my boss, our chief people and culture officer, he talks with the staff organizations and helps them just to listen and, and elevate their messages. And so I think these things can happen organically. And as leaders and organizations, what's really important, instead of just always thinking about what are we going to build, what are we going to build, what are we going to build, take a look around and see what's already there. Yeah, right. And think about how can we support, how can we encourage, how can we champion you need to build as well. But there's a lot, I think, happening within organizations that sometimes the higher up we get in those organizations, we miss it. We just don't see it. And it's just, you know, opening your door and saying, come talk to me. Talk to me about what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you need, and let's figure out how to do this together. Why do you think, why is that so hard for leaders to not, to like lose sight of what's in place and what mm -hmm. could be optimized versus just sort of building something new and avoiding that mm -hmm. sort of, natural redundancy of either efforts already made or creation of things that are already kind of partially exist? I mean, is it just complexity? Is it just sort of a natural thing that you have to fight against? What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of, lot of research out there that talks about as you elevate in your career, you get less and less feedback just generally. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. It can happen because of ego. It can happen because of people being afraid to give you open and honest feedback. It can happen because, you know, ego, you're not looking for feedback. It can happen just because of structure. So you're you're surrounded with like people, you know, yeah, as you right. get into certain levels of the organization. All of a sudden, you know, your educational backgrounds and your your income and where you live and what you do, your shared experiences they all become a little homogenous, right? Mm -hmm. they, and when you get into those non-diverse groups, I think groupthink happens in ways that people don't even realize. <laughs> totally, yeah. You know, there's people sitting around a table. And well, all yeah, of them, your world is your world. Yes, you know exactly. What I mean? Yeah. And if you're not really making time 
to go out and explore those other spaces, you're going to miss things. Totally. You know, you're sitting around a table with everybody that makes six figures and lives in their own houses with a garage and two cars and 12 TVs and, you know, you forget what it things. was like eating Raymond noodles or something. Right. You, you forget. Know? You forget living in an apartment with four other people in a two bedroom apartment because right. we're in the Bay Area and that's all you can afford. And and so I think we just get into these spaces where we we very unintentionally stop getting that honest, constructive feedback. And we paint these pictures of what the world looks like. And sometimes there are view of the world, but maybe not the view of everybody else. There's this uh, new show that I saw an episode uh, or two of on Apple TV called Loot, and it has uh, Maya Rudolph, and she's this like tech billionaires. Have you seen it? No, I've not. No, it's just uh, it kind of illustrates this thing that you're talking about. So uh, she in a, in the first episode, spoiler alert. Okay, you had your chance um, to p- plug your ears. Uh, she finds out that her you know billionaire husband is cheating on her, and she gets a divorce. So then she finds herself with all this money that she's figuring out like what to do with, and you know it seems like she's probably going to go down this sort of charity route. But in her first press conference for her charity after the divorce, it was for like a bunch of sheltered women, and she's giving them giving everybody gift bags of like all these like high end things, and it was just totally tone deaf, you know. And mm-hmm. it's like you can't help but do that. Uh, when your world changes so much, it's, it, to your point, it takes that intentionality to like, you know, re-empathize or whatever for what the average uh, or what other people are sort of feeling in order to be effective in those spaces, to your point, you know? Yeah. And, you know, manager, managers have a tough job, particularly middle managers. Yeah. What a tough job. Like you're managing a team. So your your job is to take care of your team, to make your team successful, to support them in their success. And you're managing your boss, Right. You know, your, your job is to make your boss look successful and to, to support them. And and you probably have some individual contributor things that you're still doing as well. And so you're you're supporting your team. You're supporting your supervisor, manager, boss, whatever you want to call them. You're supporting your own activities. You probably have stuff going on outside of the office that you need to be worried about. Right. Most of us have lives outside of our, our workday. And you're just if you. If you really don't set strong boundaries and know all the tricks about delegation and saying no, and you know, you can get consumed in the fires. Right. You have to that you constantly putting out fires, putting out fires, helping this person, supporting that person, working through this, helping someone thought partner on this, and you forget to lift your head up and just take that forty thousand foot view. You know, and I, I always say, if you spend your day fighting fires, all you're going to do is fight fires because they're always going to come and they will particularly come if you're not taking time to think strategically, think forward, think about the future, think about what you need to be doing to set yourself up for success. And those fires will totally consume you if you let them. They really will. The the fixing and the supporting and the all of that can totally consume your nine, 10 hour days that we all spend at work these days. And so you have to be really intentional about saying this is important and I am important. My success is important. My development as a manager is important. How can I pay attention to me? How can I pay attention strategically and thoughtfully future focused? Yeah. I think to your point, to be a great manager, you're, kind of making bets on like, there are a bunch of focus bets. And if you allow kind of whatever is dumped onto your plate to determine where your focus is put, then 
you're not necessarily making the right focus bets because perhaps to your point, you have to kind of lift your head up. The best bet of the use of your time or your focus would be to do something that's going to, you know, stop a fire from happening, but you might not, you know, have a point or have a chance to do if you're just like living in that, you know, firefighters outfit all day, you know? Right. Yeah. When you think about your organization, you know, it sounds like you have some really great support from the top. Oh, what I was going to talk a little bit, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but what I was going to talk about is how like glaringly apparent it is to me, uh, the role that, co- that the culture of UC Berkeley plays in the success of your, mm-hmm. you know, your role and, you know, your, your department's mission. It's just interesting, you know, Berkeley is the, um, you know, as you said, the sort of home of free speech. So you're going to be selecting in, you know, that's going to attract the type of talent, whatever, students, teachers, whatever, uh, that, you know, resonate with that sort of an ethos. And that advocacy, you know, that heart of advocacy, that being such a, like, inherent pillar of the UC Berkeley culture leads to a lot of, you know, advocates are, like, willing to do something. It's, like, part of the definition. You know what I'm saying? It's, like, if I'm, if I'm adv- advocating, I'm taking some kind of an action. And so it's, like, the fodder you have there is, you know, poised to, you know, drive those changes forward. So, you know, we always talk about culture as, like, this, if it gets, if it sort of surpasses a certain tipping point where the vision for that culture is actually being lived out to some degree, it can really turn into this really powerful flywheel where now mm-hmm. you, you don't have to create all those things yourself or your department doesn't have to, you know, you can, the crowd can, you know, you can source that from the crowd, which then becomes extremely powerful to drive this culture forward. So I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of that cultural aspect and like kind of just deconstruct it a little bit. And, you know, you've worked at other organizations and I'd like to maybe contrast you know, this sort of cultural, this heart, this sort of environment that you're in, how that is conducive for like more impact versus other places you may have worked uh, or spent time where the, you know, uh, the clarity of purpose or the clarity of culture maybe isn't, uh, you know, to the extent it is here and what difficulties that led to. Yeah. You know, I think everybody has the opportunity to to do this, to, to the, be this kind of passionate culture that we have at Berkeley. I think everybody has the opportunity. You know, some people choose to really grab a hold of it and take hold of it. Some people are are very busy thinking about other things that they think are important. Right. I think, you know, I've been at, to your point, I've been at organizations where they've said learning and development matters and we're going to put you in this building over here and, and, you know, be in the basement and you can maybe have a trainer and yeah, you know, here's some legal pads. Yeah. Yeah. Figure it out, you know, and luckily I've, I've not had to work in in many of those organizations. I have colleagues who have have been in those Mm -hmm. spaces and we've kind of commiserated over that together. And it's to your earlier point about if it matters, you need to put the resources behind it and you need, and sometimes those resources don't necessarily need to be money. Sometimes they're just the leader of the organization standing up and saying, I care about this and let me tell you what I did. I care about this. This matters to me. Let me show you what I did by the actions that I take. And so I think that every organization, if you truly do buy into this and you truly think that this is a way to move your organization forward, there are ways to do it that are authentic for you that probably don't cost a ton of money, but it's really just getting people to tell the story, sing from the same, you know, songbook, whatever, whatever the cliche is you want to talk about, you know, just making sure that the words that are coming out of the leader's mouth 
match the actions that the leaders are actually taking. You know, you can't say we care. Like one of my favorite things is when people do surveys, they do employee engagement surveys, say, and they get the results and then they read the results and then they either throw them in the bin or they put it in a drawer or they have lots and lots of meetings about it and don't do anything. You know, the worst possible thing you can do as a leader in an organization is ask people for their opinions and then not come back to them and tell them what you learned. Right. So, you know, if you do totally. a survey, read it, even if it's terrible, go out with a roadshow and be like, here's what we heard. And thank you for giving us this feedback. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here's the action you're going to see us take. Even if the actions are small, tell people what you're going to do about it. If you can't do something about it, say, thank you for letting us know. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that right now, but we're going to keep it in our mind. Hey, do you have some ideas? Could you share with us some ideas about things we might do to, to fix this, to help this, to support this? So you do your roadshow, you collect more information, you make a plan, and then you tell people where you where you got. You know, you come back to them and say, a year ago we yeah. were here, this is what we've done, let's do another survey, let's figure out. But you know, so many people, I think, gather this information and then they talk about it with those, that table of like-minded people and they feel like they're doing great things because you know, 30 people sit around a room and they yeah, talk right. about it, and they care about it and they make a plan and then they just forget to tell the other 3,000 people in the organization what the plan is or what they did. I think that's where organizations get stuck. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, nobody is like forced to work anywhere. I mean, we all have to work probably, but like you don't have to work in your organization or our organization. You know, people self, you know, people like voluntarily come to work every day. You know what I'm saying? And, and some voluntarily don't come to work. True. Know? Yeah, that's right. But I'm saying that's it's all based on some kind of a choice. It's not like a gulag or something. But to your point, I think for a long time, organizations have been able to sort of get away with uh, not doing what you're talking about. And if, I think if we can reframe that, um, that collective and what, what this actually is and understand that this is really a relationship between an individual and an organization and we can understand like what's important in any, any relationship, any sort of fruitful relationship, it has certain elements, right? There's a mm -hmm. trust there. Uh, there's a two-way streetedness, new word, new term, um, whatever. It's a number of different sort of qualities. And to the extent an organization can try to, you know, make those same types of connections, I think they're going to be a lot more successful. But, like, if the average employee is not in that sort of 30-person meeting where all the feedback is being discussed and they never hear uh, that their feedback was even listened to, that's like me talking to a wall. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like, well, why would I ever talk to this wall again? I'm not getting anything back from it. Why is that such a hard thing to do for folks? Is it just too complex? Uh, do they get lost in the minutia? Do you think they get lost in, you know, that meeting, that 30-person meeting, and they can sort of pat themselves on the back and look at each other uh, as all those folks go to the same coffee machine, you know, after the meeting to say like, wow, you know, we really care. Like, that just seems like such a critical piece of the puzzle that yeah. can do so much if you can get it right and put a little intentionality around it. And yet you and I are talking about it because it's not being done everywhere. Right. You know, I think, I think it's a lot of what you're saying. So people have the meeting and they're like, we reacted to this feedback. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you reacted to it in a way that you didn't let anybody know you were reacting to it. So that's completely unintentional. I'm sure that's, that's unconscious where people are saying, well, we did, we did something about it. Yeah. Look what we did. I mean, and I've, I've fall, fallen victim to this myself, by the way, mm -hmm. like, 
yeah, I yeah. think you're, I think what you're describing is right. But yeah. like, why is that last mile not part of the equation? It's crazy. Right. And I think, you know, fear probably has a little bit to do with yeah. it as we move up in organizations, particularly, you know, organizations that have certain reputations for excellence. I think leaders are afraid to say, I don't know, <clears throat> or I can't, or right. help me. I think that can be a really scary space. I think when you get feedback that's shocking, it can be hard to not be defensive. And if you go out with that defensive mindset, it doesn't matter what you say. People are like, oh yeah, whatever. You know, so, you know, it's the, we think we think we're doing things, but it's just not communicating down. It's not spreading down. <laughs> we might be afraid to do things because we don't have the answer. We might, you know, be time bound by other things. Like we have this employee experience conversation. We know we have to have it, but goodness, the budget deficit and the, I don't know, right. the argument in the House of Representatives or the, you know, war in the Middle East, the war in in Europe, these things impact our daily lives. And sometimes those very important conversations about employees, the lifeblood of our organizations, you know, they're maybe not on fire. So yeah, I think that's right. Doing okay, boy, if we did something, that'd be great, but it's good. So let's worry about this other thing. You know, I think all of that kind of com like comes together and, and makes these, these conversations not happen in ways that, that maybe they should. Yeah. And I think to, that's, I think that's, a, that's a great rundown. It also, I think a part of it is like the cost or like the negative impact of that stuff on a group of massive people, it's so hard to like attribute it. And it's such like a slow burn versus like these explosions that happen when it's a budget thing or you lose a big client, depending on the organization type, like those are naturally going to, I'm just saying like the people are, I think perhaps for some reason, like just easy to take for granted. Yeah. You know, and, you know we have history in this country and I think probably in most countries, if you think about the industrial revolution, the workers were the cogs in the machine. That, you know, if, if you stopped working, we'll call your brother That's in right. or we'll call your sister in or your, you know, it, it was, it was a different space. And so we've, you know, for what, maybe, maybe a hundred years, maybe 75 years been working in this more of a knowledge economy and employees are different in a knowledge economy I agree. than they are in a service economy 100%. or an industrial production economy. Right. And so I think it just takes organizations a minute to catch up with, you know, we're still running, COVID did a lot to change this, but pre-COVID, we were still running with the same worker mindset that we had when we were making assembly lines. Everybody get, show up yeah. at eight, everybody go to lunch at noon, everybody leaves at five, you work Monday through Friday. We were literally working with industrial revolution type work models until COVID said, hey, everybody stay home. If there is one, one silver lining of COVID, I think it's that it caused us as organizations to say, huh, is this thing that we think 100% necessary for success, is this just a habit? Can we rethink the way we do this? Can we rethink the way we're bringing people together in a pre, you know, I think that that has to happen because it's, it, it's just a different world. Totally. Um, I actually just gave, um, we just gave a keynote, me and my brother on this exact thesis yesterday on these old structures, these old industrial mm -hmm. revolution style structures that are still inhabiting our knowledge work economy. And they obviously do not work. The thing that's mind boggling to me is that to your point, um, I personally don't think it's been a hundred years, but even if it's been 40 years, 
we're squarely in it. And if it's yeah. maybe I'm wrong about 40, it's definitely 20. 20 years of us being squarely in this new this new era. And I think COVID right. will kind of serve as a dividing line between these eras. But it's just shocking to me that, you know, I mean, even in, like, you would expect, I think, you would expect sort of the way uh, organizations approach their, uh, or how they manage their workforce mm -hmm. to be, again, this is my naivety, but like, it, you would expect it to be like idiosyncratic to the type of work they're doing. And yet the strong force, the macro force, to your point for, for UC Berkeley, which you guys aren't producing, like there's no machines running, right? I mean, it's all people. It's all, for your organization, it's been knowledge work from the start. And yet mm -hmm. the prevailing sort of like framework, the prevailing methodology or the prevailing mindset was that industrial revolution thing. And that's true sort of across the board. It's not mm -hmm. like, well, consultants had it right this whole time. No, everybody, everybody has had it wrong. Why is that? I mean, what a silly thing to sort of take for granted that sort of cog in the machine mentality uh, and apply that over here. What, I mean, what is that whole thing? I mean, it's just, it boggles the mind to me. Doesn't it? Yeah. It does, and I think, we're talking about it now, which is huge. Yeah. Okay. So I've been in the learning and development space for 25 ish years. You know, I started my career in executive education back in the like late nineties. And in that role, you know, we created leadership development programming that we sold to corporations. So I worked with companies like ExxonMobil, mm -hmm. Airmark, the United States Department of Defense was one of my clients, you know, and, and so we were teaching them all these, these management concepts and they were, they were great and they were thoughtful and, but it still never occurred to us to say, do we really need to work from eight to five Monday through Friday? Yeah. Do we really yeah I mean, it's just crazy. Building? I mean, is you this know? like a sliced bread thing? Because, you know, the best invention since sliced bread, which was really just, hey, what if we sliced this bread? I mean, is it really sliced just that bread. kind of a thing? Because it's not a new thing, right? Like, it's just bread. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not shock. I mean, it, it it's not like, wow, we're having robots, you know, cars. Like, it's not all that different from yeah, right. the world we live in but we just you know kind of always assume that music came on cds yeah, right. like, do you remember i remember thinking about so i watched you know when i was a kid there were cassette tapes or there, i guess records were kind of and then there were cassette tapes and then there were cds and i remember talking to my friends and saying i wonder what the next music delivery thing is going to be like we've because you've seen I several at that point yeah yeah. Like I saw my parents had these eight track things and then we had records and then there was these tapes and then CDs, but in my mind, it was going to be a thing. It was going to be like a, a another, actual yeah, thing right. that you like plugged into another thing to make music happen because that has been what it had been. Right. And then streaming came and I was like, Oh, Oh, that's the thing. That's the thing. And the only thing I'm plugging in are headphones to my ears. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating. And I think that happens yeah. But in, in my, you know, 20 year old head, it was going to be a thing. It was going to be a, maybe a smaller CD or a more flexible one that didn't scratch. Or, right, right, know? right. And so it's, it's these, I think what happens is groups of really smart people, really innovative people, really dynamic people get together and they start talking about and sharing ideas and innovation happens. You know, it's not somebody sitting in a room by themselves building the next thing. It's having diverse groups. We talked about the the problem you get into when yeah. you are surrounded by like-minded people. Having diverse groups of people get together, talk about the problems they see, talk about the opportunities they see, 
and figure out something new and then having enough connectedness to actually make that thing happen. Yeah. Enough drive so to actually do it. To your talk, point. Yeah. You and I can sit here and have great ideas all day long, but if we don't have a, I don't know, a, a scientist or somebody that owns right. a this, somebody that's connected to a that, our ideas could just be us talking. But if you have diverse networks of people that have diverse connections and diverse skills, I think you can really make change happen. Um, another big hole in the application of that sort of industrial revolution style, like workplace structure, um, like in, just an inconsistency in its application in the knowledge work uh, economy is the, uh, you know, the hole in L&D, let's call it. Mm. Um, you know, when you're running a factory, you're like, all right, fine, you know, we're going to run these machines from nine to five every day. And okay, fine. I'm running a business. I'm going to run these people nine to five every day in the factory setting. You're going to have downtime and you're going to have repair and maintenance. Like that's going to be a, an expense on your PL. getting back to my other comment from before. Why do you think that that same sort of corollary or the corollary for, you know, uh, repair and maintenance expense in a manufacturing setting, why is that taking so long to be present on the knowledge work side? Does that question make sense? It does. And it, I mean, it's, it's super insightful. So your point is really well taken. We know when we have machines that we're producing cogs, there's going to be time for them to be upgraded or right, exactly. maintained or refreshed. Or, or checking the dials to see if it's redlining and saying, okay, this thing is running too hot. Something is wrong. Right. Why don't we have that same care for our people now that our people are 100%. producing? Exactly. You said that way better than I did. So that's, that is my question. Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful question. And I would love to put that out to the to masses and say, we know we have to do this for a machine. What on earth makes you think we don't have to do this for a person? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so we need to, as organizations, we need to start prioritizing that. How do we look for the red line? How do we see when people are burning out? How do we refresh? How do we, you know, and it's not just about you need to be more resilient you need to, you know, it, it's about how do we as organizations support people in taking what they need and give them that time to grow, to upskill, to reskill, whatever it is. But paying attention to those dials. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's because machines are very loud. When something is going on with a machine, there, yeah, there's a dial, there's something, go they're very loud. And I think some humans, Maybe we don't even notice when we're redlining. And so we sit quietly by ourselves thinking, I don't want to make a fuss. I'm just going to sit with this versus saying, hey, help me. Like yeah. do our organizations have safe space for people to, to say that. Are leaders modeling that? Are, are our leaders saying, you know what? I'm going to take two weeks vacation and I'm not going to answer email because I need to refresh. Just like a machine's gonna say, I'm gonna take two weeks of downtime because I need to get repaired because I, this, the cogs I'm spitting out don't work or whatever. Right. Yeah, it might be that. Um, I'm just kind of brainstorming and just thinking out loud. Um, I think part of it is, um, well, like, let me just say in, I think it's like a heart thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a heart thing of an organization because you can see, I mean, in the manufacturing space, there's a huge spectrum of like companies that, 
are all about safety and safety just you see everywhere or um, we're all about sort of operational excellence and those are the companies that you know will probably have a higher repair and maintenance spend and they're they're tuned into their machines more because they're just more focused on them and they'll probably have a longer life cycle for those machines because they're taking such good care of them right like if you're you know doing all the the recommended maintenance on your car that's obviously going to last longer than if you're just like well, I'll just get an oil change every couple of years or every year or whatever um yeah and so I just think for some reason there's been a disconnect. Um, and, you know, look, there's obviously, you know, I paint in like these really broad brush strokes. Like there are, are organizations that like put their money where their mouth is to your point from before and, you know, reinforce those things. But it's just almost like we just, it's almost like the world has changed so much so quickly that like we just maybe just haven't adjusted so much. You know, we just haven't adjusted mm-hmm. yet, you know. And I don't think we're like built for today's world, <laughs> you know, of like, I've gotten, you know how many emails, you know how many notifications I've gotten today? Like, a lot, okay? Like, that's not normal. Like, my grandfather got no notifications. Maybe he got, like, a letter in the mail or something. And so, you know, maybe maybe our work, you know, maybe the the technological advancement has been so fast and so swift, and it's sort of, like, just kind of taken us all by surprise, and we're all just trying to keep our head above water. You know, maybe 100 years from now, they'll look back and they'll be like, man, remember when the internet first came out? And man, they were just, you know, it's, they might look back, you know, maybe this is a question. What practices today do you think two, three generations from now will look back on and put in the same bucket that we put in people drinking out of lead pipes or like spraying asbestos everywhere or something like, like what, what do you think those present day things are that people will look back and like shake, shake their head at? Yeah. You know, I honestly, I hope I think, and I hope the eight to five Monday through Friday, I hope that people are like, well, that was a very weird way to work. Yeah. You know, I I hope that's one that people really, you know, I hope another one is like, remember when we all had to come to the same cubicle farm and we would sit in a cubicle beside someone else sitting in a cubicle and we would check email all day long and then we would leave. Like, and people call that working in the office and building community. Like, I hope that's another one that people look mm-hmm. back on and go, well, that's weird. Like, wonder why we all had to be in the same space to not talk to each other for five and six hours at a time, you know? Yeah. Hopefully it'll be like how we look back and like, imagine the nine-year-old was working those big machines back in the 1920s. Right. You know, like right? we could never imagine something so like barbaric, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I hope that, you know, and I hope that, there organizations that are another one this is a soapbox of mine the once a year performance evaluation yeah where you spend three hours filling out a thesis it's so stupid that you should keep your job and then you your manager or whoever writes sometimes they're self-written sometimes the manager writes them sometimes managers are supposed to write them and the employee writes them themselves anyway and that, yeah. so then you write this this huge thing and it's, you know, based on 15,000 competencies and you write all these words justifying the fact that you need to keep your job. And then you go and you talk to your manager and generally someone cries or someone yells or, you know, sometimes they go really well. And even when they go really well, you put it in a drawer and a year later, you're like, Shit, I have to write my performance exactly. evaluation yep. again. I hope that is something that we look back on and go, wow, that was really not the way to take care of people and support their success. You know, it's nuts. So I'm with you 100%. I think that they're so antiquated. They're bizarre. They're so, um, they're so influent. It's, it's, not, it's not like people are keeping notes throughout the year for that. They're doing it like a week before it's due or maybe the day, the night before it's due. Yeah. And Recency like, bias, Totally. Right? <laughs> well, there's not only the recency bias thing, but there's also like, what if your dog just died when you're doing that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, there's so much. Day. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. Um, there's 
there's such a massive error factor in whatever conclusion comes into it as a function of it being an annual thing. Um, but it's mm-hmm. also hard on the other side of it, I think, for managers to – well, I think there's two things. Managers, for some reason – well, maybe not for some reason. Maybe it's pretty obvious. Like, it's hard for folks to give kind of consistent feedback forever, like, continuously, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's that's something that folks str- struggle with as well. And then there's this, in, there's this interesting, i.e. annoying uh, other factor that I think is continuing to hold us back where – you know, there's a lot of like certifications that organizations have to get. And this is just something that came to mind. There's a ton of certifications that organizations need to get to show their quality. They're ISO certified. They have SOC 2 or whatever. And in those certifications, in many of them, not all, of course, but like in many of them, there is something that those auditors to confirm that certification are looking for around annual performance reviews. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So like there are these sort of uh, there are these sort of barnacles on the ship that are causing the ship to not get fixed or something. It's 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 a really interesting kind of headwind to move away from this. To your point, this really antiquated way of of doing business. Yeah, you know when we refresh the way we do performance evaluations at Berkeley, you're exactly right. At the University of California, there's a policy and it says all employees must have an annual performance evaluation. There you go. And so we said, okay, how can we stay in that box? Like, how can we say yes, and still update it. So when we did our research five or so years ago, we heard that 48% of our employees talked about to their managers about their performance once per year. Wow. 48% said, I only talk to my manager about how I'm doing one time a year. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. And this was, you know, six years ago. This wasn't 30 years ago. What was the highest bucket on there? What, on that question? on that question, was it mm-hmm. like often, once a year, never, or something like that? Was it like that, or was like yeah, how did yeah. how did you get to the once a year? Like, what so other options was, were available for them to answer something beyond like beside once once per year? Yeah, I think we asked. They talk about it weekly, monthly, got it, yearly, yeah, yeah. other, and it probably looked exactly how I would expect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like never was. Yeah, probably 15 ish percent, you know, 50% were once a year and then, and it, then kind it of dropped off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and this was pre COVID. And so we said, we need to do something about this. And there were definitely voices that were saying, but the policy says, right. All employees need to right. Right. Once a year. Like, I appreciate that the policy says that let's figure out how we can still do that, but also build a program where people are talking to their manager a little bit more about how they're doing and what they need to succeed. So there's going to be voices, I think, in every organization that are like, but this is what the policy says. This is what the compliance is. This is what the state requires. This is what the federal requires. And you obviously have to stay in that path. Yeah. But those paths are generally wide enough that you can get creative. And That's not a great break point. the rules, not break the law. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do something that's more human. Well, yeah, you can change the inputs to the extent necessary to get the outcome you want while still staying within those sort of policy or certification, you know, requirements. Um, It just takes having a group of people that have a diverse point of view. So when they read that, they say, what about, and then mm -hmm. instead of getting shot down immediately by the person that's like, that'll never work. We tried it five years ago. Um, It's not going to work. Instead, like having a true open brainstorm where people can just throw out ideas and not get shot down right? and put out every, you know, I, 
I think we'll, uh, maybe this is another thing that we're going to stop hearing around conference tables or Zoom rooms. The We tried that already and it didn't work. Right. Like we know the world has changed so much in the last couple of years. I mean, things that we tried a couple of years ago, maybe they will work now. Or maybe there's maybe new tools or maybe we didn't, uh, you know, how many, how many times can you with certainty say, well, I've tried everything. It's like, never, you can never with certainty say you tried everything to your point. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's just this like paradox to me. It's this, this conundrum because, you know, our voluntary turnover is higher than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Yes. Our, uh, like the reasons why people change jobs, that data is very easy to find, whether you don't want to find it for your own organization, you just want to look broadly. A major reason, if not a top reason is due to like, they're leaving jobs to get more opportunities somewhere else, more development opportunities. Um, and so that's on the one side, that's on the supply of labor side and on the demand of labor side, uh, where we see that supply playing out, what do we see? We see, like I said, higher turnover than ever. And we see like a global engagement level of under 70%. So people are not engaged. They're not getting the opportunities they want. They're changing jobs more than ever. And again, if we think back to our old, uh, our old industrial revolution style, you know, whatever you called it, a, a production economy, like think about if machines had legs, they would obviously mm-hmm. be going to an organization that was going to be doing repair and maintenance so that they didn't get run down. Why are we not like, oh my gosh, this is such a massive cost on our organization. Like the cost of turnover is brutal. You know what I'm saying? The cost of employee engagement while a silent killer is really high, even if that number is generally correct, that 70% engagement level is generally correct. And Mm -hmm. if we could brush a couple of of crumbs off the table to groups like yours to start to build out this coaching coaching culture and provide Mm -hmm true opportunities for people to do learning and development, either that they self-select into or that they need for their own career, if that could raise the level of engagement and drop that turnover, that would all fall to the bottom line at the end of the day, whatever that bottom line is for your organization. And yet, here's my question, and yet leadership at large or leadership in in aggregate still hasn't had that light bulb turned on. What's it Mm going to take? Another hundred years? Is it going to take them finally listening to the ethics uh, experts or what? Like, how do we get that light bulb on? Because it seems like it's definitely a positive ROI investment. It's definitely a better culture. It's definitely a a physical manifestation of your so-called, your whoever's so-called commitment to people. And yet it's not happening still. Yeah. You know how I think one of the ways I think we get it to happen is by getting people in those leadership positions who have experienced life a little bit differently mm. than our typical CEOs. Kind of your, it's kind of your diversity point from before, like inaction or in ascension right. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think getting people with different lived experiences, getting people with different career paths, you know, not every CEO needs to be a white man that's six foot three and went to, Stanford and or USC or Harvard, whatever it is, you know, there has to be ways that we start seeing human talent and human potential through transferable skills. We need to break that paper ceiling. We need, you know, the degree ceiling. We need to break the glass ceiling. We need to, we need to get people sitting around those tables, making decisions and having the conversations. And you just need one, one brave soul to raise their hand and go, are you sure or help me understand why, you know, someone to just ask the question and get people talking about, oh, 
we do have a different workforce. The workforce doesn't look like the workforce when I was fresh out of college. You know, we I think sometimes right. get so disengaged that we don't understand a 22-year-old right now today has a very different aspect, a very different hope and dream than, totally. than we even had at 22. You know, I heard right. somebody the other day saying, gosh, kids are just not as resilient as they used to be. And working at a top public research institution, that bothered me intensely because you know what? When you were 19, if you had to deal with Facebook and Instagram and cyberbullying and right. you know, having a picture of yourself doing something stupid, like blathered across the world, like defining you. That, yeah. Right. Like, I don't know that you would be as resilient as you think you would be either. Like the world is different. It's changed. And we need to stop saying, well, when I was 20, blah, 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 blah. Right. And start saying, oh, this is interesting. This is what you are dealing with at 20. Let's figure out what, what that means. Well, it's such like a thoughtless uh, attribution analysis. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's to come to that conclusion, there are a ton of unspoken assumptions mm -hmm. behind that conclusion that are usually not accounting for any of these things, or it's at least saying that the things that you just mentioned are non-factors. Those are non-needle movers. But like, also think about the, like what we're talking about is like a perspective, right? People's output right. in the world is a function of the lens that they see that world through. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And if you're laden with a ton of student debt or all of your friends are in that same boat, or if, you know, think of the homogeny of, um, perspective for my grandfather who was coming back from the war and the homogeny of perspective around the, what the America dream dream was and the achievability of it. Right. Like there was a pretty, you know, and again, I wasn't alive then, but I'm just saying it seems to me from, you know, things that I've read and so forth that that was a pretty dialed in kind of picture of what the Amer American dream was. And there was a pretty high proportion of people that believed they could achieve that. I think now that picture is a lot more sort of amorphous. Um, mm -hmm. And the percentage of people that think they can achieve whatever that old dream was, whether it was the 80s one or the 90s one or the, you know, 50s one is definitely a lot shorter or a lot smaller. You know what I'm saying? And so what role does that play on the perspective that people have? You know, right. if for shorthand, the American dream was to become a millionaire or whatever, let's just use that as shorthand. And then today, nobody believes they can become a millionaire and they're surrounded by a bunch of people in their peer group who also don't think that because they're all dealing with these same kind of struggles, student debt, COVID, whatever, you know, social, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Well then, the proportion of people that believe that they could achieve that is obviously gonna be like way lower. That's a, I'm just saying that's like a big factor as well. And I think it's easy for a generation to say, oh, you know, Music today stinks. And it's like, well, everybody said that about my music when I was young. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's the same story over and over again. And it's such kind of like a cop-out attribution to say like, oh, you know, kids today just are idiots or kids today are lazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just sparked something for me. We're, we talk a lot about burnout. So people are, are really burning out. Yeah. And I think there's a misconception. Some people think that burnout happens because you work too hard or you work too long. That's, that's simply not true. Like there are people in startups here in Silicon Valley that work 90 hours a week and they are not burnt out. They're, they're right. feeling energized and excited, but it's because they, they know they're part of something bigger. They, they think they can succeed and they're surrounded with people who think they can exactly. succeed. So how about we stop talking about burnout being 
you know, something that is like, oh, you're, you're just, you're just lazy. You don't want to work that hard to say as an organization, what can I do? I can help people feel like what we're doing matters. Mm -hmm. I can put them in situations where they're with teams, where they're contributing to something bigger than themselves. I can grow them and develop them and help them find their people and find their skills and find their passion. And it's not about let's have, you know, a four day work week or, or maybe it is, I don't know. It might be. It's not necessarily it's that. It, yeah. Right. Yeah. In my perspective, it's the organization can say you matter. What you're doing is blazingly important. Look at the people's lives you're changing yeah. or, you know, maybe that's not the passion for everybody. It's look at the new thing that you made. Look at the way you changed the world. Look at the way you impacted how, XYZ people think, feel, whatever it is, whatever it is that ignites the passion within the people in the organization, what brings them there, focusing on that and focusing on how each person in the space is contributing to that versus what you were just talking about, where a bunch of people sit around and think, gosh, I'm never, never going to get the American dream. Like, there's no way for me to get there. Of course, you're going to feel burnt out if, if you don't see that North star or that, right. that path, that light at the end of the tunnel to get you to what is important and, and take you to your happy place. Yeah. I think, um, you know, maybe burnout is not just to your point, working hard. It's yeah. working. It's feeling like you're working hard for nothing. And that nothing go. is not just money. It can be to your point, purpose or impact or all those kinds of things. And, uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, I'm sure whatever we're experiencing is not like the, you know, we're not the first people to experience this kind of a dynamic where there's this sort of generational shift and there's these different perspectives. I mean, at the end of the day, most of the folks in middle management are managing a world that's way different than the world that they grew up in. And because yeah. that world, while, fa you know, while the change has come fast, in retrospect, as that change is happening, you're not really noticing it. Like I saw a picture of an old iPhone before like from whatever, like 10 or 15 years ago or something. And I was just like, oh my gosh, dude, that iPhone looks like crazy. But at the time, it didn't look crazy at all. And, and I don't remember the gradual changes in it because I was kind of a part of it. So um, yeah, I think just kind of, you know, maybe the, the big theme for today is this, is, is intentionality. You know, it's, we need to have an intentionality with how we think about things. We have, have to have an intentionality with like the kind of spaces we end up building and the things we do to prove that our heart for the creation of those spaces is real and not just a bunch of words. And we have to have some, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just kind of talking about uh, empathy, which you can't really have without understanding, you know, understanding mm -hmm. what that current plight is. It's probably going to give you some better perspectives on how to, you know, uh, get the most out of, you know, your machines, which are going to be, mm -hmm. a diff which are going to have a totally different lived experience. And you know, what I like about this conversation is uh, we're both right. No, I'm just kidding. Well, we are. But uh, what I like about the conversation is um, there's a certain openness around this and there's a certain, um, I don't know, There, it just seems to be like we need to know that we might be getting something wrong in order to, mm -hmm. to change it, you know, and um, an openness to like, we're not, like, I'm not judging sort of the old way or the new gen generation. I'm not saying, like, oh, they shouldn't think that way. It's not, that's not, that's, first of all, like, a stupid thing to say. And it's just kind of, it is what it is. And uh, an understanding of what the dynamic that's in play, uh, I think, is critical for us to dr drive any meaningful change in, a, in our workplaces or in the employee experience, you know, for, for our companies. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's, 
it's asking questions to understand, not asking questions to judge. Yeah, right, right, right. It's, it's responding to questions to help, not responding to questions to defend. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is the world, to your point, the world has probably always been a little bit on fire. Right now, though, because of the way yeah, right. social media and the, the, I mean, I think it was when Dick Cheney was vice president, he changed the law that said news organizations no longer had to provide both sides of the story. We could have polarizing, politically motivated news sources. So, and when, so he was president or vice president with Bush. So, I mean, this wasn't all that long ago where we started growing these news organizations who were very one-sided. And so all of a sudden we're, we're surrounded with information about plight and tragedy and very monochromatic viewpoints. And all of that, I think it's just, it's overwhelming. Well, and it also kind of creates a thought culture that we're all kind of falling into. It's like, okay, well, this is the view. This is the right thing. And it's like, it's so much more gray. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, I think that's a great point. That's interesting. I think the empathy piece is huge. I think, yeah, asking questions to understand, responding to help, you know, thinking, not judging well when I was, because the world is different. Totally. And being open to, I don't know, maybe, maybe virtual reality will help us with this, but it's really hard to to do something that you've not experienced. So what what I mean by that is, so when, for example, um, to teach an online class, if you've never been a student in an online class, it's really hard to be a professor in an online class. Well, carry that forward to a manager. If you've never gone through sort of the current generation experience, how do you manage those people and understand it, you know? Yeah. I mean, man. how How do you do that? You know, there's so many factors that are, I mean, human beings are perhaps like the worst, uh, the worst things at like an accurate attribution analysis, you know, mm-hmm. like there's so many people who became millionaires in the eighties and I'm sure they were smart people, but I mean, there's tons of smart people that don't make any money and there's tons of, you know, geniuses who don't have any impact. I mean, there's so many different circumstances and it's so easy to like point to yourself, uh, for somebody who's successful, uh, and say, well, yeah, that was me. Well, maybe there was... You know, maybe there was a, a huge expansionary economy or there was, a, you know, an expansionary Fed policy that caused, you know, money to be very cheap and that that drove a bunch of like aggregate demand expansion. And you just sort of rode this wave. You know what I mean? Like um, and I think and good it, for you. Yay. And, yeah. And good for no, you. But also you didn't. For- yeah. But like if you if if you're riding a big wave, you didn't you probably didn't make the wave. Right. But it's easy to be like, look at this huge wave. Look how high I am right now. You know what I mean? Um <laughs> And so I think if we can just, you know, maybe it's just kind of come, comes down to like a little bit of like humility and, you know, empathy back to your point. Um, cause it is, it is just such a, you know, I was on social this week and there was this video going around of these two, uh, I think they were Gen Zers who kind of just got out of college and they were like literally crying on TikTok about, you know, how am I supposed to make this nine to five work? And just mm-hmm. the comments to your point were very polarizing And you could almost see like, oh, I could guess people's generation by those responses, you know? And it's like, it's easy to, uh, it's easy to be inaccurate, you know? It's easy to like, you know, and again, I'm just rambling a little bit now, but like that negativity bias that all humans have might be like the biggest contributor for it, 
which is in the absence of information, we tend to fill in the gaps with negative information, you know? And so if you don't know what that actually feels like, well, then you're going to attribute it to laziness. I saw yeah. this, this other tweet a couple of months ago, which I thought was so, uh, so funny. You know, it was like, you know, people, you know, kids today are lazy. That was kind of the thing. And so it, it showed a magazine clipping from like this year that said it. And then it showed one from last year that said it. And last year and last year, I'm, and I'm telling you, they had clippings going back like 80 years. And yeah. every single year was some, you know, some clipping from some newspaper saying the exact same thing. So it's like, okay, well, if that's like the general tendency, if all new music sucks for every generation that's come before you, well, like, does the music actually suck or is it really just a function of like what you grew up listening to? You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Lived experience and yeah, you know, people wanting their space to be the right space. Right, right. Yeah. Man, this was, uh, this was fun. See, I knew I had a good feeling about this one. <laughs> this is so fun hanging out with you today and, this was and chatting fun. a little bit on our on a sunny Friday here in, in Northern California. I don't know what the weather's like in your space. But yeah, it's nice. It's Friday nice here, here today. So uh, we don't have the consistency of beautiful weather that you have, but uh, we got a good one today. Uh, awesome. Angela, where can people find you and reach out to you? Yes, I have a very unique last name, which is good for me. I think I'm the only Angela Stopper on LinkedIn. So ping me on LinkedIn. Let me know you heard us talking here. Let me know you want to connect. Um, happy, happy, happy to keep the conversation going. You know, I think exactly what we've talked about. We are at a precipice here. We are at a time when we can make change. We are at a time when we can look at some of those habits. We can look at what's happening in our boardrooms. We can look at what's happening in our workforces and we can start pushing for diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of just humans. We can yeah. start talking about care and empathy and understanding all of these things are critical right now. So if anybody else out there is like-minded, reach out. If you disagree completely, reach out too, because I'd love to have a conversation to help me understand your points of view as well. Yeah, reach out to me so I can block you, please. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well, we will see you all next time. Thank you, Angela. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>